Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You good? I'm good. All right. Sound man, three, two, one. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm absolutely excellent. Well, I'm in a better mood now. We got to hear a little bit of that, uh, Jeff Jarrett sing-along clip from our live show in Orlando. If you were confused as to what you were listening to, it's that the uh, very end of our show there in Orlando, we invited Jeff Jarrett on stage to sing what song exactly, Bruce? In my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. 
That's probably the first time that some bitch ever sang that thing live. I'm sure it was. It was something special, something unique, and all of our live shows are going to be exactly that. So if you haven't seen when we're coming to your area, stay tuned. We've got details on that coming up soon. You never know who or what is going to happen. Uh, we also want to give a quick shout out and a plug to Matt Coon for all of his awesome work on last week's uh, episode. If you didn't listen to the very end of our WWE ECW segment, we really encourage you to. Right at the very end of the show, we played a Jerry Jarrett interview that had been remixed by Matt. The interview actually happened in Memphis on Cerrito Live. Dustin Starr, a huge fan of the show uh, and a great contributor to the wrestling business, actually interviewed Jerry Jarrett and asked him about his favorite chicken salad recipe. And I think prior to hearing that segment, uh, people thought that your impression was a bit of an embellishment. Uh, what feedback have you gotten about that interview, Bruce? Go check it out. If you haven't already, it's available in the archives at the very end of the episode. Matt Coon is the mastermind who put it together. Uh, Bruce, what else did you discover was the feedback from our ECW episode? Any sort of good, bad, or indifferent feedback? Not nearly enough bingo calls. All right. It's time. We're getting right into it. Bruce, what happened when the world wrestling federation presented king of the ring, 1996, now, before we get started, if you really want to follow us in a little bit of chronological order, I recommend highly that you go listen to In Your House, Beware of Dog. That episode is available now in the archives, and that was the pay-per-view that was directly before this show. And as a reminder, it's the show that famously lost power and chaos ensued. The main event here at King of the Ring that we're going to be breaking down is actually a rematch from that show. So it's worth a listen. If you're going to be totally in the loop, it's in your house. Beware of dog available now in the archives, but let's catch you up. There's a lot going on in the world of pro wrestling in both May and June. Hall and Nash showed up on nitro in May and the WWF filed suit against Turner WCW and Bischoff in June. Now we're going to cover all that in long form another time. I'm sure, but I just wanted to mention it. So you have an idea of what's going on across the aisle, so to speak. Uh, Hulk Hogan wouldn't become the third man until July. So if you're keeping score, we're still in June here. That hasn't happened. And at this point, there's lots of speculation as to who that third man is going to be. Will it be Lex Luger or the British Bulldog? Those are the two leading candidates in all the dirt sheets. But allegedly, Hall and Nash are campaigning hard for the third person to be Bret Hart. Uh, Bruce, considering Bret's contract was expiring over the summer in like June or July, were you guys nervous that there could have been a third man in the pink and black? A little bit. Yes, definitely. Because you had guys leaving, obviously Hall and Nash and Brett was during his off time here. So he hadn't committed. He did not commit fully to us yet. And he gave every indication that he would, but at the same time, he didn't actually say that he would. So yeah, there was definitely concern because you didn't trust anybody at this point. Now, for those of you who are keeping score at home, Brett wouldn't show up and resign until October, but he had agreed before this to agree to appear in South Africa in September for the WWF. But it is fun to think about what if Brett had followed them, Hall and Nash that is, and joined the NWO in 1996. How different do you think the wrestling world would be today? If Brett would have went in 96, I mean, it certainly would have looked a lot different. Well, I mean, Hogan probably would have come back to the WWF and the screw job may not have happened. And the Mr. McMahon character may not have happened. 
what other kind of fallout could there have been had Brett actually went south in 96? Who knows if Steve would have gotten over to the level that he did? Who knows? Again, the Mr. McMahon character to me is as pivotal as the Hulk Hogan heel character in the NWO. And people can point to Hall and Nash all they want, making the switch. The tide turned when Hogan joined the NWO and Hogan turned heel. The perfect storm existed at WCW to you know take over and be the new leaders in the industry for quite a while. But it was those pivotal moments that I you know, without McMahon turning heel and actually becoming a character, I don't know that the business would be what it is today. Well, let's talk about what did happen. King of the ring. Uh, let's get right into it. In the observer, they got 84.3% thumbs up for the show. Only 7.1% thumbs down and 8.6% thumbs in the middle. Overall, when you oh, watch well, and then, then the show's over, fuck it. Hey guys, thanks for coming. It was King of the ring, Austin 316 and Sean one. And okay. We'll see y'all next week for the poll topics. Do you want to, uh, plug your t-shirts before we get out of here? Oh yeah. Bruceprichard.com. New shirts available too. All right, cool. Are we done then? Uh, God, look at that. What'd you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Where were you at on this show when you watched it back 21 years later? Uh, High spots and low spots. The overall, I thought that the show was pretty damn good show. I found myself stopping and actually watching it. A lot of times when I watch these shows, I'll be playing on the computer and, and doing other things and glancing out of the side of my eye, um, seeing what's going on. But this one I actually kind of stopped and, and watched and there were some really good high spots and there were some, some low spots too, but overall I kind of agree. I thought it was a good show. I thought it was a really good show too. Uh, even all these years later, I still think it stands up. There's lots of fun matches on here. Uh, the best match that night, according to the readers of the observer was Shawn Michaels and David boy Smith. And the worst match was Vader and Jake Roberts. Uh, what do you think the best match on the card was? I bet we have a different opinion. Actually, I thought that Sean and bulldog had an excellent match. I loved it. Uh, I sat there watching it just going, damn, it was good. I just thought it was a solid match. I'm a little weird. I guess I really enjoyed undertaker mankind. I thought that was a great match. It was a great match, but it, it was watching, just watching the nuances of Sean and bulldog. I thought was tremendous. The, it was a great main event. This is the fourth annual King of the Ring. It took place on June 23rd at Mecca Arena. It's in Milwaukee, and it sold out three weeks in advance. You had 8,762 fans paying 142 grand and change. Uh, so I'm curious, Bruce, selling out three weeks in advance in 96, is this a welcome surprise or by this point, business as usual? No, it's always a welcome surprise when you can sell out in advance. You like that. Um, it's a, it's a nice advertisement to say, Hey folks, we're coming. Sorry. You can't be there with us, but you know, enjoy it on pay-per-view. Uh, Dave Meltzer wrote, uh, that the show was quote highlighted by Shawn Michaels retaining the WWF title over Davey boy Smith in a match that certainly made up for their subpar match on the previous show. Meltzer would go on to say he thought it was the second best major match of the year, trailing only Michaels and diesel from Omaha. Uh, do you agree that up to this point in 96, those were the two best matches 
Michaels and Diesel at that in your house, and then hear uh, Michaels and Davy Boy? No, because I thought that uh, Brett and Sean had a great match at Mania. That's what I was going to remind you of. I mean, I feel like he kind of overlooked that one. It's not my favorite match, but I know a lot of people who still say that WrestleMania 12 match is people's absolute favorite. Yeah, it's. I mean, come on. Yeah, how do you how do you forget that? And here's your your expert, your wrestling historian that forgets what I consider probably the best match of the year. I gave it four and three quarter stars. I love you for that. So the actual show itself here starts with a package about the ultimate warrior and Jerry Lawler feud. And that's one of the things I found most interesting, uh, about this period in the WWF. It's an interesting time. You've got Sean on top, uh, Vader in the WWF bread on hiatus. Mankind is fresh on the scene and Austin three sixteen. man. It's about to change everything. But here we're starting with Jerry Lawler and the ultimate warrior package. And that's opening the show. Uh, it feels like a very, and maybe the most transitional period in the history of the company. Would you agree with that, Bruce? One of them, but the thing that stuck out more than anything to me is warrior wearing the baseball cap. I could not wait fucking nuts. So for those of you who missed it, kind of catch everybody up and explain what we're talking about here, Bruce, because in that package warrior in this goofy baseball hat is all over it. And I know it's a pet peeve of yours. Well, it is because he's out there. He's ultimate warrior. He's got his hair all pulled back up and fluffed up and all this bullshit and wearing a baseball cap. That's not the ultimate warrior. The ultimate warrior is face paint, a maniac, and not a baseball cap wearing goof in a ponytail. Why did he wear a baseball cap and a ponytail? Because he was afraid of the, the hit with the painting that Lawler was going to give him. I feel like you're talking right now. Like people listening, everyone listening has, aren't, seen, they, aren't they watching this right now? No. They know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. Let's start so over. To, this is right. Like it, I'm doing radio. Yeah. That's kind of what we're doing. I don't know if you realize that people are listening in their car right now. Oh, okay. No, there was a, an interview where Jerry Lawler had done a painting of the ultimate warrior. Lawler actually did do the painting. And it was a beautiful painting, and Lawler wanted to present it to Warrior, and Warrior kind of shit on it. But the angle was that Lawler takes the painting and bashes it over the Ultimate Warrior's head. Warrior, afraid of getting cut on the glass, wore a baseball cap. And that's where I just went fucking nuts on the baseball cap. Fuck him. And he didn't want to get glass in his hair. He didn't want to get cut. He was afraid of getting cut and didn't want to get glass in his hair and didn't want to get, was more, uh, more fearful of an injury. Do you think some of that is because at the Royal rumble, uh, many years before macho man lit that ass up with that scepter. Bummer. I mean, that's gotta be what it is, right? Cause didn't he cut warrior's head business brother? Uh, huh. Yeah. <laughs> Just take it, brother. You win them in the ring, you lose them in the ring. Uh-huh. If you're going to be a pussy, then go fucking somewhere else. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was, was that a real conversation they had? Probably, yeah. Uh, the- you don't want to be hit? Go work with Hogan again. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to hit you, brother. Just see. Yeah. Oh, I love this. Uh, the oh, He's allowed. The opening video refers to this as quote, the greatest card ever in the history of King of the ring. You agree? Oh, well, yeah. going to go that way. Let's pigeonhole it. The greatest card ever in the history of King of the ring in Milwaukee at the Mecca. <laughs> <a little> better. <laughs> uh, 
Um, to start the show, to start the show, we see Owen, Owen Hart making his way to the ring. He's sporting a tuxedo and a cast here. And of course, carrying his slammy, uh, he will join Vince McMahon and of course, Jim Ross for commentary. And uh, if you haven't watched this in a while, let me just tell you, Ross's tuxedo shirt here is about as 1996 as you can get. Uh, I'm curious, Bruce, how did Owen Hart go about getting the gig and what was the general feedback for him after the show? I ask because he does some things that are hilarious, but not really stereotypical of a wrestling announcer. For example, he's really on Jake saying he's not 41, he's 51. And he calls him an old timer and says something like if he couldn't win a title 10 years ago, he shouldn't be in the ring now. Uh, I thought one of the rules of thumb in wrestling is to not talk about how old someone is. Was there any pushback on this or anything else that you remember Owen saying? No, as far as the age thing, that was the whole angle with Jake talking about that. He was in the twilight of his career and you think now think about that because that hit me tremendously this week, watching it, talking about, oh my God, he's 41. What the hell is he doing competing in the ring? And then you think about the guys <laughs> that were competing in the ring um, later on and, and the age. But 41's not that damn old. Hell, that's a young man. Absolutely. Especially in wrestling now. You know, he was positioned as an old timer. And I want you to really right. ap- appreciate, you know, when, when he's out there saying, oh, he's over the hill. He couldn't do anything 10 years ago. What business does he have in here now? He's elderly. It's worth mentioning that uh, AJ Styles will turn 40 in a couple of weeks. And hasn't even really approached his best years yet. I'm just saying a lot of people listening right now will go back and watch this tape and say, oh, yeah, he is gold. Well, he's exactly one year older than AJ Styles. Okay, but yeah, but the years of AJ Styles and the years of Jake, they they went through a few different things in those years. Yeah, you're Jake right. Because- lived, Jake lived his 41 years. My God, Jake had about 98 years of living in that 41 year old body. Well, it's important to remember that more than a decade of AJ's 40 years, so 25% or more were spent working for Dixie Carter. I mean, that'll age a brother. Will it not? Well, look, you can you see me without my glasses on right now? I'm just saying, did you see Matt Hardy when he started TNA and then how haggard he was when he left? He was broken. And that's all Dixie. I'm just saying. Well, you know. Uh, let's talk about the set here. Um, oh, before we do that, I want to talk about Owen Hart. Well, how did Owen get the gig? Did you guys like test him out doing some other stuff or do what you did with Million Dollar Man or Royal Rumble 94, also available in the archives, and just say, hey, come in and do it? No, this was simply a one-off for the King of the Ring, Owen being a former King of the Ring and not having anything on the card itself to be able to spotlight Owen in a different way. I guess the question is, though, you had who had a lot of confidence that he could do this and do well? Because he's filling in for Lawler, who obviously can't do it since he's in a match with Warrior. So who had confidence that Owen could kind of carry his weight here? I think we all did. I think we all did. And it was... That was the other reason was the fact that Lawler had a match and would not be doing commentary. Otherwise it would have been Lawler and we would have moved on, but it was simply a position on the card. Let's talk about the set who made the uh, royalty props for you guys. I know in 97, y'all used AFX studios in Atlanta and uh, triple H hated the crown. 
but I've always been curious how over the top goofy some of this stuff is. Are these designs approved by Vince or does he see them the day of for the first time? No, it's all approved ahead of time by Vince and the TV people. At this point, uh, Richie Posner was probably involved in different set designers. When, um, when I said Triple H hated the crown, you started laughing. Oh, he hated that motherfucker. He destroyed it. We had probably four different crowns made that Triple H would destroy every night, that it would accidentally fall and he would accidentally stomp on it repeatedly <laughs> or it would uh, get eaten by his dog or something would happen every single time to that crown to where finally it's like, Vince, these motherfuckers cost like a couple hundred bucks to make every time that we do it. He ain't going to wear the crown. The crown looks goofy as shit. And it was like, it was like a fucking Pope crown. It's ridiculous. It was the silliest looking goddamn thing you ever saw in your life. And other than Jerry Lawler, I don't know anybody that can get away with wearing a crown, uh, beyond 1976. Uh, King Haku. Uh, yeah, but that was a cool crown and, and savage. Okay. I'll yeah. give it savage too, but beyond that. Okay. Don't fucking be throwing logic back at me. Motherfucker. Okay. Sorry. Um, what, what did you think, uh, the odds of stone cold, Steve Austin putting on this goofy fucking crown were? Oh yeah. That wasn't happening. <laughs> I watched this show for the first time in a long time this week. And I had a friend in the room who had never seen it. And when he knew that Austin won the King of the ring, but he hadn't seen the actual show. And when he saw the crown and the scepter and the Cape, he's like, please tell me he puts that on. Please tell me they made him put that on. I can't imagine what that conversation might sound like if Vince were trying to tell Austin to put that on. God damn, pal, you look regal. Fuck. There's a royalty walking. Look at that. The purple and the jewels. Stone cold. God damn, that's hot. Um, but you know, the other guy that made the king shit work was Booker T. King Booker. I know he didn't wear it in the seventies, so that can't be true. Cause you just said a minute ago. I, uh, okay. Uh, who are the, who the guys opening the doors for the entrance? I know everybody listening at least one point has asked, Hey, who are those guys? A couple local guys. You don't remember who they were though. Fuck no. Come on. For the purposes of our story, let's at least give them names. Okay. That was bill and uh, Jeff from uh, Sheboygan. Okay, cool. Bill and Jeff from Sheboygan. I like it. Uh, how would Vince describe? I think Jeff, I think Jeff was from the Dells. Oh yeah. I can see how you get that confused. Yeah. Uh, how many buildings in 1996 had wooden chairs? Like we saw on the floor here in Milwaukee. When I was watching this back, it stood out like a sore thumb. Is that a wooden chair? That seems way, way out of place. Even in 96, was that pretty common back then in the Midwest where it's cold and they have, uh, the hockey arenas it seemed to be a little more prevalent and in, um, Buffalo, they had them too. I, I think, and this is strictly, I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe one of our historians out there can find out, but I do think that there is actually a method to the madness that when they have a, a an ice rink underneath and you put the metal chairs down, it's cold as fuck. But when you put the wooden chairs down, it's not as cold for the people sitting in them. Huh? For concerts and shit like that. So, so there you go. That's my theory. I just made it up just now, but I'm sticking with it. I think it makes sense. So fuck it. Yeah, that's why. 
Uh, did you guys have a, a gold set of guardrails you used all the time for these special occasions, or would you just spray them before and after? Spray them before and after. I don't know why, but I knew that would be the answer. It seemed silly to have a separate set, but I know a lot of people would assume, oh, they just use those at WrestleMania 10 or King of the Ring. Nope. They're silver, then they're gold. Now they're back to silver. Sometimes they're black. Yeah, they are now. Uh, as I mentioned before, Owen comes to the ring with a slammy. Uh, we haven't heard you talk about these much on the show before who made these and whose idea was it? I know they did these very early in your tenure there. Uh, but this actual design, do you remember who came up with that and who thought of this idea? The, the slammies is the original design from the very first slammies that Vince did. And it was simply a mold that they kept having redone over at the uh, slammies R us. Thank you for that. Um, there's a crown around the lighting rig over the ring. This feels like a Vince McMahon idea. Is it? It's probably somebody from production. Um, and I don't know who the hell that would have been back that time. Now it's uh, Jason Robertson, I think is his name who does a lot of that now, but I thought it was a cool idea. It looked neat for the big wide shots. Uh, watching this back, I saw some anti WCW signs, a few anti Sean signs and a very prominent RF video sign that when Lawler is on the stage with all of the Royal props, they're trying very hard to shoot around. When do you remember sign confiscations becoming a big thing? This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for mother's day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back. And they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam, you're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson. With paintyourlife.com, that can become a reality. You can put people and places together, even if they've never been there. You pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes, and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks. But you work hand-in-hand -hand with the artist to get every detail perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going, to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got, and I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. 
Text Wrestle to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Ever since I was there in 1987, that was a big thing for television tapings. So chat me up, uh, cause the, the signs kind of get out of hand in the attitude era. They weren't as prevalent back in, you know, the mid to late eighties, but when you're there originally, um, what type of signs would you guys go fish out of the crowd? Who spots them? What's the process to get them? Kind of talk me through that. Anything that was anti the baby faces or anything anti the company that, you know, you're producing a television show. You want to create a certain ambiance. You want to create your heroes and your villains. So if it was going against what the hell you were trying to put out there, then they asked people not to display those signs and took them away. And so when they would, uh, who makes that call? Somebody in the truck, Kevin Dunn alerts somebody on the floor or how does that work? Usually. Yes. If they're in TV view, yeah, usually that's what happens. What was the standard policy over the years about sign confiscation? Do they offer you t-shirts or say, take it down and get out? Or what's the plan? No, they ask, they simply go up and ask them They say, Hey, we appreciate if you don't show that sign. And if they continue to do it, they'll confiscate the sign. Um, most, especially early on. You find if you just are nice to people and ask them, hey, we're doing TV taping here. You're blocking people's view behind you, which that doesn't work when there's a lot of signs and people are doing it. Um, But if it's annoying and obnoxious and obstructing views, you can ask people, hey, please don't put the sign up. You're obstructing views and or it's offensive or whatever. But you just ask them nicely not to do it. Most people will oblige. Do you remember a particular story about a sign confiscation that got out of hand or a particularly memorable sign that popped the boys? No, not off the top of my head. I, you know, there are people that, that didn't want to, and there were always the overzealous security guards when you would ask a security guard to go over and get a sign. So they think they've got to be the Gestapo. It's like, I'm going to go get the sign, boom, and take the sign and tear it up and shit. And again, that's what I say, man. If you just go over and talk to the people, say, Hey man, um, listen, your sign's getting in the view of the cameras and all this stuff. We'd really appreciate it. We don't want to see that on TV. Appreciate if you not put it up anymore. If you do continue to put it up, then we're going to have to take it away from you. And like I said, most people are cool. Uh, those people that just want to be dickheads are going to be dickheads. are going to take it away from them. But, um, that's how they try. That's how we tried to handle it for the most part. Uh, before the pay-per-view, we had the free-for-all preview, and uh, if you're a new wrestling fan, you may not remember this, but once upon a time, uh, the WWF would air kind of a pre-show, and 
They called it the free-for-all, where they would really hype up all the matches that were on the card, show you some video packages, give you some brand-new interviews, and usually, instead of airing a dark match uh, just for the crowd only, they would actually put this match on the free-for-all. And in this particular episode, we got the Body Donnas, and they defeated the Rockers, which are Alan Sarvin and Marty Jannetty. They go about eight minutes here. Uh, The Body Donnas here introduce a brand-new manager, Cloudy. This is the independent wrestler, Jimmy shoulders. Uh, the finish saw leaf Cassidy use the sidewalk slam on skip, but cloudy got in behind the ref's back and kissed leaf who was stunned. And then of course, skip schoolboy him for the pin that dastardly schoolboy, uh, Meltzer would write. I don't know what it says when you've got two transvestites and two finishes that stem from a man kissing another man star and a half. So let's talk about cloudy again. Uh, we've covered this in great detail on our sunny episode, which is available in the archives, but briefly whose idea was cloudy and was anyone against this kissing finish? Who are the two transvestites? Well, he's taking a little Liberty. We see, we're not going into transvestite shit again. No, we already, we already did that before. We won't go there. Um, but you, you had sunny, sunny's no longer there. So now we got cloudy, the anti sunny. Whose idea is this? Seems like a Vince's idea. idea. Yeah. Um, how was, uh, leaf Cassidy for this kissing finish? Fine. Uh, leaf Cassidy, of course, is, uh, the man, uh, being portrayed, uh, by Alan Sarvin. It's not a name we hear very often. Is this the type of guy who would have a busted taillight on his car? Oh man. He's a, he's a damn criminal and driving with a broken taillight is, is not the smarter choice. You know, it's just simply not. Uh, Steve Austin would uh, pin Mark Merrow in just under 17 minutes in the very first King of the Ring semifinal on the show. Uh, there was a big Sable chant early on the show, and Owen said, quote, Austin didn't bring a hose bag to the ring. Any memories of that line or feedback? It's got to be a first to say hose bag on WWF programming, right? Probably not, <laughs> but... Maybe at that day and time, it, it might not have been the most appropriate choice of words and descriptors. Uh, he also says something like, this is Owen we're talking about. Since when does a girl become a good manager? Now, I don't know why, but that made me laugh. Owen was maybe more inappropriate than we could be in 2017, but I thought he was hilarious on this show. When you guys saw what talent he had here, I know you would ask him to go ahead and call the South African tour later in September. Uh, and that match is on the hidden gym section of the network. If you'd like to see stone cold, Steve Austin, take on Bret Hart. Uh, it's an underrated match and Austin actually has to wear pink wrist tape because he's lost his wrist tape and Owen's doing commentary. It's good stuff. Why didn't y'all do him on commentary more after this? Do you think? Well, because he was a worker and he was wrestling all the time. This was simply an opportunity to use him and do something a little bit different with him, but he was yeah, I thought Owen was great here. He's a smart ass in the back and did commentary in the back. And usually those guys do well when you stick them out with a mic in front of them. Do you think, uh, had things been different that him being an announcer could have been, uh, you know, he could have been like the new Jerry Lawler, so to speak. Oh, definitely. Yes. On the way to this match, Austin has to be Bob Holly on superstars and Savio Vega on raw. Uh, that raw is just a few days prior to this in the same week. And this is the show where Austin debuts the new finisher, 
Uh, Bruce, do you remember how this finisher came about? Obviously when DiBiase was here, he was using the million dollar dream, but with Ted gone, how did the stunner come to be at least from your recollection? I think it was a combination of Jake, the snake Roberts and Michael Hayes, who helped him come up with the stunner and, and came up with that idea. Just something different that he can hit on anybody and everybody. And I think I, I, I want to say it was Jake. Do you think, uh, Jake is the person who suggests kick him in the stomach to cause him to lean over similar to the way Jake used to have a move that would kind of set up the DDT. Everybody knows it was the short arm clothesline and that's what he would use to set up the DDT. Do you think the kick to the stomach was Jake's kind of garnish on there to tease? Okay. If he kicks him in the stomach and they lean over, you know, that's coming. Do you think that's a Jake idea? Probably so. Jake, Jake had Austin as a project at that time. And Jake is responsible in a, in a great many ways. Uh, I was going to talk about it when we get to the match, as far as Austin getting over to the extent that he did. Well, before Austin ever stunned anyone, Johnny Ace had used the ace crusher over in Japan and diamond Dallas page was using the diamond cutter in WCW. Uh, and triple H even tried the diamond cutter as a finish before DDP called him and asked him not to do it. So triple H instead switched to the pedigree and each of these guys would try to convince you that their variation of the move was different. Hypothetically speaking, Bruce, how would Johnny Ace describe the differences between the ace crusher and the stone cold stunner? Mine was in Japan. Uh, six stars, six stars. Uh, on Mero's way to this match, he had to beat Skip of the Body Donnas and then, of course, Owen Hart. Uh, we've talked about Owen a lot on our Owen Hart episode, also available in the archives. But I want you to chat me up about his cast here. Uh, how long was this an injury before it became a gimmick? You got a guy with an injured arm in a cast. God damn, it's a natural. <laughs> Absolutely. Mean, as soon as you got a cast, it's a gimmick if you're a heel, and he's a heel. I guess what I'm asking is, when did, how much longer would you estimate he wore it just for working purposes as, as opposed to rehabilitation purposes? Probably when it got to the point of Vader stinky. And then it was time to come off. Then it comes off, yeah. Uh, Once you reach, there's their stink, then there's stinky, then there's Vader stinky. When you get to Vader stinky and the shit walks on its own, time to go. New gimmick. That should be like a laundry detergent commercial, don't you think? Without a doubt. Like, Do your clothes stink? Are they really stinky? Or are they Vader stinky? There you go. Eliminate Vader stinky by... <laughs> Matt Coon's doing that in a couple of weeks. I can bet a dollar. <laughs> uh, it's a little thing I've always enjoyed in matches and Austin did it here. When do you remember heels going outside and trying to call a timeout becoming a thing? A timeout in wrestling has always amused me. There are no timeouts in professional wrestling. Conrad, everybody knows that girl. Luan soon taught us that a long time ago. Ah, shit. It just works. Unfortunately, they don't do it enough. Do you think, uh, was that something they were doing in the business? Even when you started watching in the forties? Oh God. Yes. Okay. So it's existed since color pictures. They had color. Yeah. Uh, something I don't get in wrestling is when the baby face gets a heel in the corner and stands on the second rope and gives him 10 punches and the crowd 
kind of counts along. Uh, in kayfabe, this makes no sense. You know, in a real fight, who the fuck's doing this? When do you remember first seeing this? And and I need to know because I want to send them hate mail. I don't know, but I hate it as well. Uh, the only person I know that hates it more is Vince McMahon. It's totally illogical. Mm-hmm. It's just a, you know, it's a crowd. It's like standing in the corner and stomping your feet and getting the crowd to clamp, clap or clamp either one. Um, it's just cheap and it looks like shit and buries the fuck out of your opponent. I, I hate it. Now, when you're talking about standing in the corner and stomping your foot, are you saying Ricky Morton on the outside waiting for the hot tag? Or are you saying Shawn Michaels inside the ropes, tuning up the band? I'm saying that when the guy starts, starts the match and they sit there and they, you know, start stomping their foot, and oh. get the crowd going because the crowd's not behind them. Tracy Smothers. I got it. Uh, both guys are taking some big bumps here and doing some pretty innovative stuff otherwise. And I feel like I say this every time, but whenever I watch Austin 96, 97, I'm just reminded of how awesome he sold for the other guy. There's a spot in this match where Mero picks him up by the head. And as soon as he lets go, as soon as Mero lets go, Austin just collapses in a heap. When did you guys know that Austin was the full package as far as promo charisma in ring? This show really, to me, solidifies him as a superstar and not just because he won, because of his promo, his internet. I mean, this shows you everything he can do. As soon as Steve came in and Steve was going around the horn, working on top with Shawn Michaels as the million dollar champion versus the WWF champion, uh, you just saw it. He was, he's just so damn good. And that was before the neck injury. He was just great. He really was. He was he was a top guy when he came in and it just took time to feed that to the audience in the proper way. How crazy is it to think that this is 1996 and a year prior, 1995, both Mero and Austin were in WCW and nobody even knew who Sable was yet. How quickly was wrestling changing in 1996? Marco. Mero. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, yeah, and then he was Johnny B. Bad. So everything was changing. You know, a year a year before that, you had Diesel and Razor. Yeah, and now you got Hall and Nash. So the the business itself was evolving, and it was evolving quickly. Two years prior to this, you were working high school gyms. Now you're selling out Milwaukee. In the mecca. Uh, this was the best King of the Ring card in the Mecca in June ever. Wouldn't you agree? Especially in 96. Uh, at one point, Mero kicked Austin in the mouth accidentally and busts his mouth open pretty good. They would later say it required 16 stitches in his mouth and tongue. Um, and, of course, he got stitched up between matches. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, despite that, these guys still go on to have a pretty hot opening match before Austin got the pin using what Meltzer called quote, his stone cold stunner, which is basically the same move as the diamond cutter or ace crusher. Great effort by both wrestlers, three and three quarter stars. Bruce, you watched this match again recently. what did you think of the match? I thought that Merrill was blown up about five minutes into it. And you really, you really hate this guy. Don't you actually, I don't, I think Mark's a hell of a nice guy. I just was so underwhelmed when the bell rang. I thought it was a good match, man. I I think it's probably Mero's best match in the WWE. Can you think of a better one? No. (laughs) So this is his best one. But but also, yeah, I mean, he 
the the deal with Steve's lip came with a with a headbutt off of the ropes when Merrill came off of the ropes backwards, bashed his head into Steve's face, and that's where the the initial cut came from. But it was yeah, it was ugly. But it, no, the match the match was good. I just um, I guess I pick on Mark Merrill. Austin and his but I like Mark personally. We're not talking about that. We're talking about his TV character. We're not burying guys individually. I will, if you want me to just Jared, Jared, I think, um, Austin wrote in his book that it was a kick that Merrill kicked him in the mouth. And that's what did I think it. it was. I think it was a shot off the, um, watching it back. Cause I was looking for it. It looked like the, the shot off of the corner rope where Merrill hit him with his head. And that's when Austin came up with the blood for the first time. So if you're listening and you enjoy stone cold's podcast, please, Steve. please Steve tweet stone know. cold and say that Bruce Pritchard called you a liar. Don't tag me. But uh, Bruce's handle is at Bruce Pritchard. You know, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the SCSA fucking thing come up on my phone. Goddamn kid, what the fuck you kicked me in goddamn teeth. Well, I mean, I told you what he wrote in his book, and you were like, "No, it was his head." He doesn't know. No. It was his mouth. The foot hit I him. Said, in the- I said I watched the goddamn thing, and when Merrill came off of the fucking top rope and head butted him, basically coming back, hit him in the head, and Steve came up with a bloody fucking mouth. Steve doesn't know. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I needed. Um, did Steve you, don't know when he got fucking busted open. 16 stitches changed his goddamn career. So he comes back through the curtain, bloody mouth mangled. In fact, did you talk to Steve, uh, before he went back out or, I mean, did you see him when he was mangled backstage like this and they're trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Yeah, man, you can see a great shot of it when Steve's walking back from the ring. You just see his lip kind of hanging there. It was gross. Um, tell me about calling the audible for his medical care and still keeping him in the tournament. Was there ever any consideration that we need to replace him and do something different? Or was the thought always we can stitch it up and go? Was anybody trying to push one way or another? No, and I think that it was Steve's call to, you know, fuck this. He he wasn't going to miss anything. But there was time to get it stitched up and, and get him, you know, Humpty Dumpty put back together. So let's uh, let's go ahead and clear the air once and for all. Uh, lots of people still debate this to this day. Did Steve get the stitches at a medical facility nearby or in the back? At a medical facility nearby. Steve says it happened in the back. So tweet Steve Austin and tell him that Bruce Pritchard says hey, you're a liar. Did we say, did we say that it was a goddamn medical facility nearby? No, I, I think he actually named the hospital. Okay. Well then let's go with that. No, he got, he got stitched up backstage. Uh, who does the stitching and why is it Pat Patterson? What? Hypothetically, if Pat Patterson was going to stitch up stone cold, Steve Austin, what might that sound like? Give me nothing. And fucking a little bit of super glue. You'd be fine. I go back out there. Do the, do the thing you do with the the the, the, the Stever, the Steve thing, stun. You know, at a pet case, at a chase. I, I wonder if he would make stitches plural, or if he would just have stitch singular. No, he need, He had to get the. He had to get sixteen stitch. <laughs> Uh, it's worth mentioning that this is Mark Merrow's first loss in the WWF, but he would go on to win the intercontinental title that fall. Uh, hypothetically, what could the crowd have chanted to Merrow on his way to the back to kind of cheer him up? Marco Merrow. Uh, next up, we get a really strange promo from Jake Roberts, and he's talking about how his soul was purchased by the blood of the lamb. 
but then immediately says, if I was going to rob a bank, I wouldn't go in the front door. I don't know why, but this just cracked me up. How inconsistent is this, that we're doing a religious promo and then we're talking about robbing banks and the sentences damn near touch each other. Uh, is there an agent over this? Or at this point, you know, Jake kind of is an agent. Is he just doing what he wants and he doesn't see that this is inconsistent? Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what we're saying is Jake would go in the back door. Careful tiger. Um, how was Jake's newfound faith received by the office and the boys? Because there's lots of times where you hear guys in wrestling kind of discount when a guy turns over a new leaf and finds Jesus and says, oh, he's just working a gimmick. Oh, it's an angle. Uh, did people feel that about Jake here or had Jake kind of earned his stripes and proved that this was legitimate and he was really trying to turn his life around. Well, I believe that he was really trying to turn his life around. I think that there are always going to be skeptics and people that doubt it. And you just have to judge everybody and how they portray themselves and, and carry it off. So, um, okay. That's a PC answer. Did people buy no, I mean, it? Or I'm, no? no, I'm telling you the truth. Do I think that Jake really wanted to turn his life around? Yes, I really and truly do. Do I think that at the time that he was practicing all that he preached? No, I don't. My question and was not whether or not he believed it. My question was, how was it received by the office and the boys? I think that the majority of people felt it was bullshit. I think the majority of the people, you know, felt that Jake was Jake and that he wasn't changed and wasn't going to change. Um, do you have any fun snake stories about the yellow snake? Because he's using the yellow snake a lot during this run, but not on this particular show. And there's been some stories that have come out over the years that maybe Jake wasn't always the best snake handler, so to speak. No, he wasn't. But at this time we were using, um, an animal services guy. Basically. Yes. And we would, we would try and get snakes in the areas that we were to use them so that we didn't have to carry the snakes around all the time and be responsible <laughs> for it. So you would try and find snakes in the area and, and rent them. You know, you just go hang to hang uh, on, rent man. a snake. So snakes are us. Let me run through this. And they didn't have no white snakes are us in damn the Mecca. So we had to go with, well, goddamn, what kind of snakes y'all got? <laughs> well, all right. Y'all got them brown kind of greenish snaky looking snakes. Well, give us one of them. <laughs> y'all ain't got none of them yellow albino snakes. Well, fuck. You give us what you got then. Is it big snake? Well, how big is it? Well, that's too big. You ain't smaller snake. Got like a medium sized snake. Here's what I like. I like when it comes to guys to open the doors 
but the entrance for the king of the ring or the snakes you're like oh it's just a local <laughs> like, like, it was a local snake it was a Mil- yeah it was a milwaukee snake the local promoter had to find like we need 30 guys to set up chairs we need two guys to open the doors we need a snake oh shit you know what you laugh you're gonna fucking laugh at this but this is this is the shit when the Sheik, the original Sheik, used to come to Houston, we used to get him not, a snake. Not the Iron Sheik, the Sheik from Detroit. No. Yes. Sabu's F-R-A. uncle. Yeah. The original. And we used to get him a snake. And I believe that the name of the place was Reptiles R Us. Reptiles so, R Us. Yeah. So you laugh at my goddamn. There are a lot of places out there. You know, there's. We, uh, there anything in there? Snakes are us. What kind of snakes they got? Uh, when Jake comes back for this run, he's not exactly the svelte Jake Roberts we might remember from 87. And he's coming back with a, a shirt vest type deal as part of his gear. His idea or Vince's to wear that? Yep. Was his Both. Idea? Okay. Both. Uh, I never really noticed just how big the lifts in Jake's boots were until I watched this show back this week. But if he were a girl, these boots would have been called wedges because homie is like six inches off the ground. Uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to reach here. If Jake were a dancer at a Hispanic gentleman's club, what would it sound like when they introduced that he was coming to the stage on stage? Uno. Yeah. Anaconda. Roberts. Stage two, Yolanda, you are next. Uh, let's talk about uh, how we get to this match. Vader got the win over Ahmed Johnson when Owen Hart knocked him out with his cast. That, too, was Ahmed's first loss in the WWF. Uh, Bruce, what was it about guys going undefeated for months and then finally losing? But then winning the Intercontinental title seemingly right after it happened with both Mero and Ahmed in 96. So it seems like a creative staple of someone uh, who really liked the idea of let's beat the streak and make it believable that they're going to lose. Then let's let them challenge for the title, but win it. So they have an air of, you know, being beatable. Well, everybody loses. And I don't think that there's ever an idea of, oh, well, this guy's going to have a long streak. They just, they got to lose sometime. Everybody has to lose sometime. Uh, why did Vader get a buy in the King of the Ring? And don't say because Vince wanted him to. Well, I'm at a loss. I ask because he didn't have an opponent after I'm mad until Jake here at the pay per view. So if you're not sure what to say, uh, do what Tony Schiavone does. It was a booking committee. Wait, uh, fuck, I was on the booking committee. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, that doesn't work. Uh, on his way here, Jake Roberts had to beat Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Justin Hawk Bradshaw. Uh, was losing to Jake part of Triple H's punishment for the curtain call? Yes, sir. As a reminder, Hunter got squashed by the Warrior at WrestleMania 12 and then lost to Jake in this tournament. So not a banner year so far for Triple H uh, that he would one day become, but he turned it around in the fall. Uh, Jake Roberts actually gets a win over Vader here by DQ in about three and a half minutes. Vader jumps on Roberts early and just pounds on him. Uh, eventually Roberts hits the DDT and on the way down, Vader pushes the ref and the ref goes down in what Meltzer called a very unconvincing spot. 
The ref immediately calls for the DQ and the finish was supposed to be more convincing according to Meltzer. Uh, but he says it was a weak finish either way. After the match, Vader attacked Roberts and gave him a Vader bomb with the storyline being that he has now damaged Jake Roberts ribs. This gets a quarter star in the observer is the this thing- coming from the guy that, that has done so many convincing motherfucking spots and his illustrious career is a great worker in the goddamn Tokyo dome, right? Is the thinking right. here, let's get Vader over like a monster, but we don't want him to advance and dominate, but be a dirty heel instead and have it cost him the match? No, the idea simply was that we needed to hurt Jake to get to the finals and with Steve and we didn't, yeah, Vader wasn't going to go over. So get him DQ'd and make him a monster. Vader kind of no sells the DDT here. Uh, was that okay by this point? Because Jake was pretty much winding down the in ring and the plan is for him to be more of an agent backstage or what was the long-term plan here for Jake? Well, Jake was coming in and he was being an agent, being trained to be an agent at the time he was helping us write TV at this time. So that was long-term plan. Uh, Vader not selling it is probably just more of Vader being Vader. Okay. Uh, I'm curious, um, about this whole Vader in the King of the ring tournament, because it seems like up until this point, uh, the winner of the King of the ring tournament has not really been a top guy, but instead used as more of a sign to the audience that this guy is a player and is an upper mid card performer, but watch out. He could be a main eventer someday soon. Is that kind of the way you felt about Owen and Mabel and the way they were booked? And now since Vader is here to maybe headline SummerSlam, the decision is let's not just let Vader run the thing and dominate. Let's instead try to push somebody else up the card. And that's how Steve Austin gets the nod. Well, no, the original, the original idea was to go there with Hunter and the original idea kind of got, got trashed after that. But, uh, Steve got the nod and Steve was the guy that we decided, well, Hey, let's sprinkle him with some King of the ring dust and see how he does. Do you remember anybody, uh, specifically when the Hunter stuff happens campaigning for Vader to be King of the ring, or is everybody in agreement that it needs to be Austin? Nobody, no, absolutely not. Nobody campaigned for Vader to be King of the ring. The idea, the idea at that time was still to kind of move forward with, uh, Vader and Sean on and the net, the- on the network, we get a Coliseum home video exclusive of Cornette and Vader. They're both flipping out backstage. Uh, the only thing that sticks out to me was the spot where, uh, Cornette wears his glasses on his nose and they've apparently rubbed his nose raw. What's up with that? Goddamn. It rubbed my nose on the thing and the glasses got on my face. No, well, the funny part was, was Vader, um, is a little cemento and he's snug backstage grabbing corny and corny was pissed. Goddamn motherfucker. Stop grabbing me. And you see corny a couple times, like trying to pull Vader's hands off of him and like pushing him off of him. Get off me, fat motherfucker. You gloves sting, and I had goddamn Kraft macaroni and cheese spaghetti dinner tonight. And I'm gonna throw it up all over your goddamn stank ass gloves and get my face anymore. But um, that's what I kind of that was my takeaway. I was just chuckling at how pissed off Corny was that Vader kept grabbing him and being around his throat and shit. 
Uh, next up is a pretty awful promo with Sonny and the smoking guns. Oh. Uh, Sonny holds her own. Doc Hendricks is doot, doot, doot. Bart Gunn doesn't even say a word. Uh, but Billy, well, you know, not good. How bad was Billy's promo here, Bruce? God, they were all bad. I thought Sonny was horrible too. It well, just didn't. There was, there just wasn't any chemistry there with the three of them at all. I can give you, I can give you two reasons why Sonny's part was not bad. Okay. Her face. Uh, so, uh, this is so bad that Vince actually says, quote, I think they're stalling on the air. And I know there's lots of complaining online that the WWE shouldn't script so much. Uh, but when we see it without a script here, man, you got to think a script couldn't hurt. Who would have been an agent for this? And when Vince says, I think they're stalling on air. Can you translate that for us? Because you speak Vince. Wrap it up, pal. So yeah, that was it. Who's the agent for this? Oh, it was an agent. It was probably, probably God at that point. Might've been me just telling them what to, what to say and do beforehand. You should have been fired. I mean, what's he paying you for? If you know, I should have fucking been fired a lot of goddamn times, but I wasn't just twice. Uh, next up smoking guns, retain the tag titles, uh, against the Godwins. They go about 10 minutes. Uh, Meltzer would write basically no heat at all, except for the reactions to Sonny. The finish saw Bart hit Phineas with the cowboy boot to allow Billy to pin him star in a quarter. Uh, what did you think of this match, Bruce? This is maybe my least favorite match on the card. what did you think? Well, I'd have to say this is one that I was thankful that the bell rang at the end of this match. At some point in the match, we go to a package backstage and we see cloudy and she finishes her segment by blowing a kiss to Jr. I need you to admit clearly for the record, that was a rib. No, absolutely not. And the funny part about it was they cut off, they cut off a cloudy in the back before she was done before she got her last little line in about blowing the kiss and Vince or Jr. or whoever the hell it was blew the, blew the finish and got out of it too soon. So somebody blew cloudy. You're saying no, they blew the cue. You know, they blew cloudy's cue. Yes. Okay. Um, were you a fan of cloudy's package backstage here? No, sir. Uh, next up, we see a backstage interview with Cornette, Clarence Mason, the bulldog and Mr. Perfect in the background. And the tease is that perfect is in the heel locker room, but he's supposed to be an impartial referee in our main event with bulldog and Shawn Michaels. Uh, bulldog explains that he's in this locker room because he'd get his wallet stolen. If he dressed where Sean was, what stuck out to the most to me about this was two things, I guess one, how useless Clarence Mason was. He literally does nothing. Did Clarence Mason contribute to this show at all? He wrote Ritz. He what? He wrote Ritz. I'm sorry. A writ. It's a legal term. He's a lawyer. No, I'm, I'm with you on that, but what was he doing on the show? He was there with Cornette and Bulldog. Standing. They were having legal proceedings. Yes, he stood very well, too. What's it pay to just go to the show and stand? Back in those days? Yeah. It depended. Does it have a comma in it? Yeah, maybe. Pay-per-view. He got $1,000 to stand there? For a pay-per-view, why not? Well, 
a lot of people listen and line up to stand. Uh, the other thing I liked about this was Cornette's promo where he referenced his great friend, Dick Murdoch, who had just passed away from a stroke. Uh, would he have had to get a name drop like that approved by anybody in 96 or Vince didn't care? No, not, not for Dick Murdoch. Uh, next up, we see the Sega Saturn WWF blimp flying around the inside of the arena. I've always loved these little blimps inside the arena. This one sponsored by Sega Saturn. Bruce, I'm curious. What was your favorite Sega Saturn game? And why was it battle monsters? Hedgehog. I don't think that's a thing. Yeah, it is. For the purposes of my story, your favorite was battle monsters. Okay. Battle monsters. Thank you. Uh, Lawler takes his time coming out for the next match, stopping by the set to pick up the scepter and then insult the town and then individual fans along the way. And this was a pretty fun part to go back and watch. I enjoy when the fans actually start yelling back their reactions range from sticking their tongues out, flipping him off, calling him everything from ugly to homosexual slurs. And someone says, fuck you. Uh, how great was Lawler at getting heat here in Milwaukee? Uh, Lawler's great at getting heat anywhere. Locker room, Milwaukee, <laughs> Memphis, Stanford, Southwell Fields. Um, ballpark the cost of the Warriors entrance for his match here. Uh, he has pyro by the doors, special lights in front of the aisle, the warrior logo lights in the ring. And then of course, this giant warrior symbol we see with pyro in the ring, any ballpark per entrance or overall for this entrance ballpark it just for the one entrance or like for either one you want to give me, Bruce, you've clearly got an answer. You want to give me, so give me one $6,000 per show. Holy shit. That's like five, six times what y'all pay Clarence Mason to stand. But you know, I think they could have saved some money here and just not done that. Uh, Next up, we've got the ultimate warrior. He pins Jerry Lawler in just under four minutes. Uh, Meltzer would describe it as quote, some pathetic clotheslines and a shoulder block dud. Uh, what say you Bruce, can you rank the shoulder block as a finisher? Lawler knew how to protect himself. Lawler wasn't going to take that shit. Uh, super dumb question, of course, but in kayfabe, when Lawler is attacking the warrior with the scepter and then choking him with the wrist tape, why doesn't he get a DQ? I understand in real life, the warrior can't do a lot and he has a shoulder injury. So Lawler needs to fill some time with the insults and now this stuff, but in kayfabe, this is a DQ all day. You're fucking hitting a guy with weapons and choking him with tape. Well, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's illogical when you try to then have a match later on that you have referee have some authority or have a DQ <laughs> doesn't mean shit. It's, it's so that's what guys forget sometimes. Yeah. Along the way, Lawler nailed his awesome pile driver, which if you're not in the loop, Lawler has one of the best pile drivers in the history of the business. Uh, but warrior no sells it immediately and pops right back up. Uh, where do you rank Lawler's pile driver all time? It's up there with Paul Orndorff and who else? Terry Funk, Nick Foley. Oh yeah. Those Nick Foley the, did a great pile driver. He has a great one in this show too. There's great four here. Uh, next we see a doctor who may or may not be Dr. Kevorkian in the back, taping up Jake's ribs in the locker room and gorilla monsoon is there to say, he's not going to stop Jake from competing in the final because the doctor doesn't have x-ray glasses. Uh, what would it sound like hypothetically if Vince McMahon bought x-ray glasses? Let me see those. Come here, let me put them on. Oh yeah, baby. Yeah. Give me another cup of coffee. 
Yeah, you know how I like it. Hot, wet, and sweet. Yeah, bring that coffee to me. Oh, yeah. Get out of my office, Howard. What the hell are you doing in here? God damn it. The, um, my favorite line of that is wet. I, I don't know that I've ever had dry coffee, but wet is the way to enjoy your coffee. Who was the doctor here? I, it wasn't Kevorkian, but who was this doctor? He was the local, uh, Milwaukee, uh, psychiatrist. Uh, he looks just like the leader of heaven's gate. I'm just freestyling. Uh, we see the hype video for the mankind undertaker match next. And I just love this. Uh, they had this one bit they show where the undertaker was on the outside of the ring and mankind is hiding under the ring and grabs onto his leg, not letting him climb into the ring, causing the undertaker to lose by count out. Just awesome stuff. Who was the genius behind that finish? I think that was old Jack, the snack, Robert. That is fantastic. I love Jack, the snack. Um, I also love this, this mankind stuff very early in his mankind character. I think it's some of the best stuff that Foley's done and it gets overlooked because of everything that he's done in every other character. Um, but I think his feud with the undertaker actually brings out the best we've seen in taker in years, maybe ever. Why do you think taker was so motivated here? Did Foley push him? He finally felt like he had an adequate dance partner after all those years, you guys made him wrestle giant Gonzalez or. What, what, what really clicked here for their feud? I think simply what you said, as far as Mick pushing the undertaker was somebody that the undertaker didn't have to just be that dead man, zombie like character. And he was able to grow in the character with his work because Mick could do it all. Taker could do it all. And in those two characters, they just merged so well that they really just accentuated all the positives of both. So uh, Taker was just a great dancing partner with, uh, mankind. The opening sequence of the match has undertaker get mankind in the corner and start throwing a series of big right hands, fast and furious. And that sequence has made like every highlight package for years after this. Uh, if you haven't seen this match, I encourage you to go watch it. I loved it. Um, somewhere in the match, we see Vince McMahon, uh, credit Dr. Sam Shepard with the mandible claw move that mankind is using. Uh, a lot of people may have heard of that name, but they're not putting two and two together. Bruce, remind everybody who Sam Shepard was. Sam Shepard was a doctor that was accused of murdering his wife and actually got off for murder, murdering his wife, uh, was found innocent or not found guilty. And after the trial, essentially he was destroyed and he couldn't, continue to practice in the medical field. So what does one do when they can no longer practice in the medical field? You become a professional wrestler and he used the mandible claw as his finisher because he explained how it paralyzed someone, uh, when you put your finger and it actually does by God, uh, Mick studied this and, and used the mandible claw correctly, but that uh, Dr. Sam Shepard was also the inspiration for the television show in the movie The Fugitive. So there you go. Uh, I think everybody has probably seen that movie now. It's uh, one of the more fun Harrison Ford films. So The Fugitive was actually a wrestler who inspired the mandible claw. The more you know. Uh, Mankind beats The Undertaker here in about 18 and a half minutes using that dreaded mandible claw. Along the way, these guys pull out all the stops, but Meltzer thought it went too long. 
Uh, I disagree. I love the match, but I love everything about this character too. I love the old mankind squeals he would make and that he would just pull the hair right out of his head and throw it in the air. Uh, just great stuff. And there's a line in here somewhere that I thought you'd get a kick out of Bruce, especially when I watched it back. When Taker was trying to take off mankind's mask, he says something like trying to get the mask of sorts off his face. I'm not sure we want to see that. Uh, what did Vince think of Cactus Jack's matinee idol looks? He's hideous. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, Mankind pulls out all the stops here. Uh, an elbow off the apron onto the floor. Taker kicks a chair into his face. He backdrops him onto the floor, onto a chair. We get a chair shot to the back, a chair shot to the head. Um, and then at one point, Mankind runs all the way around the ring to build to build up some momentum and then knees the undertaker in the face, right into the steps at full speed. Uh, we have that great pile driver we talked about earlier, but he can't get the pin. So he gets the urn from Paul bear. Eventually Paul wrestles it back from him. Uh, and finally bear goes to hit mankind with the urn, but he moves and it hits the undertaker. Uh, the classic wrestling finish mankind then uses his mandible claw and gets the submission win. And Meltzer wrote quote, Fans were basically shocked by the finish. It's gutsy to have a babyface icon lose in such convincing fashion, especially a strong gimmick guy. But when they did it at WrestleMania 10 with Brett and Owen, it led to some rematches that drew the biggest houses in a long time. Three and one quarter star. I loved it. What did you think? And was there any sort of conventional thinking that said, Hey, uh, the babyface can't lose like this. Or was everybody on board with pushing mankind this direction? Everybody was on board. And even probably the biggest person on board was the undertaker feeling that it just led credibility to that mankind character to beat him convincingly and give undertaker an obstacle to overcome. So it made sense. It was a way to just solidify that mankind character. And also, like I said, you know, give, undertaker something to fight for and it's not often that you have that strong of a babyface character having to fight from underneath and overcome so i thought it worked great uh, i thought it was interesting that owen hart on commentary basically called the angle from SummerSlam before it happened saying paul barry didn't accidentally hit the undertaker with the urn he knew mankind was the better man he was tired of the undertaker was there any heat on owen for guessing that or was that even the plan at this point no, there's no heat. He was fed that probably. Uh, next up, we see a Shawn Michaels interview and he has on the world's largest earring and looks ridiculous. Who handled, who handled, uh, Sean's wardrobe here, Sean. So he made his own gear. Yeah. By hand. He's in the back with a goddamn singer. And, uh, no, it was one of them fancy ones. Like one was a singer, like a Toshiba. Yeah. Like a Toshiba. And he, he got there, got the little needle and shit going. Uh, Julie Youngberg, uh, one of the seamstresses, did all of Sean's stuff. Um, but I think Sean handled his own earrings. Uh, next up, we have everyone's favorite, Ahmed Johnson. Uh, the build for Frank this. Googly moogly. We covered on the In Your House Beware of Dog Show. But the gist is that Goldust tried to give CPR to Ahmed, and that humiliated and embarrassed him. So he's out for revenge and wants Goldust's IC title. Now in real life, Bruce Goldust had hurt his knee here and was probably needing some time off the road. Is that right? Yeah. And he was burnt too, but he was injured and, and burnt as well. So 
This was designed to give him a little away time. Ahmed wins the match in 15 and a half minutes. And that is about 14 minutes longer than any Ahmed Johnson match should ever be. Uh, they start off with lots of hot brawling. And then eventually Ahmed tries to do a running dive over the top rope, but he misses completely and nearly hurts himself pretty badly. Goldust tries to save him as much as he can. Were you watching this on a monitor in the back? And what did you think of Ahmed trying to do a suicide dive like this? Did you, you're bringing this up on purpose, aren't you? No. Over all the dive stuff on social media and what have you. Oh, uh, I kind of forgot Because that's that. exactly what I thought of when I, uh, was watching it going, Oh Lordy. I met Johnson painful. doing a dive. Yeah. Painful, 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 painful. 300 pound men like that shouldn't be doing dives. When the undertaker did it a year later though, you loved it. Well, he could do it. Okay. And he actually dove. This was more like a, a launch and a fail. Remember that time Undertaker fell on his head? Yeah, he meant to do that. Uh, that was at, a spot. at some point, um, right after he nearly decapitates himself with this dive, he just shrugs it off, stands right up, and then picks up the ring steps and throws them at Goldust, or so we would be led to believe. But he misses so comically bad that Owen says something like, Ahmed needs glasses. That ring post looks nothing <laughs> like gold dust. Um, I thought that I was that awesome. One. I thought that was awesome. And there's another line in here that Meltzer has at one point, there was a screw up as Johnson was in a sleeper and the ref checked his hand and it went down three times, which should be a finish. Did you catch this watching it back? Yes, I did. Um, does anybody ever tell Ahmed that if it falls three times, that's the end, or are we all more focused on getting him the right thigh pads? Well, the, the issue then becomes whether or not you, you take in, you make assumptions, you make assumptions that, that people know how to count. You make assumptions. People knows what comes after one and what comes after two. Hypothetically, if I met Johnson had to count to three, what would that sound like? Um, Meltzer would write after a week pile driver, Johnson started rubbing and fondling on Johnson. Wow. Uh, Johnson on Johnson. That's, that's a different kind of movie. That's what Meltzer wrote, but I'm pretty sure he means after a week pile driver, Goldust started rubbing and fondling on Johnson. Yeah, he did. Giggity. Uh, and after a sleeper, Goldust kissed Johnson again. Hey, you can't do that. There's kids he watching. Didn't kiss him. He gave him, he gave him CPR. <laughs> that uh, you shouldn't say it like that. That triggered the Superman comeback, and Johnson got the pin with the Pearl River plunge. Um, is the lesson here? He gave it two stars, by the way, which is at least a star too many. Uh, so if you want to motivate Ahmed, just give him some sugar, right, Bruce? Well, you know, hey, you know, and, and again, I didn't think this match was that bad. I thought it was a demonstration of just how good Goldust was is he was able to get a match out of Ahmed. It was a convincing match and he busted his ass and took a shitload of punishment in this thing. But, um, I didn't think it was that bad. Um, Ahmed wins the gold intercontinental title here. And I say gold because Goldust had a strap custom painted gold. So the leather from Reggie parks is actually gold for his run here. Uh, and as a note of trivia, there's only two folks who ever hold this gold strap intercontinental gold dust and Ahmed Johnson. 
This is something y'all did with Warrior years before, where you made the world title and the intercontinental title very colorful. Whose idea was it to make the leather gold? Is this a Bruce idea, a Vince idea? I think it was something that just kind of evolved as we got it and thought, hey, wow, wouldn't that be cool if he turned it gold? And I said, God damn, that's a good idea. I don't remember whose idea it was. It may have been Goldust because he used to always be thinking about the character. Uh, the belt was looking pretty rough here. And Dave Milliken, uh, a belt maker who has done work for WWE and as business partners with Reggie Parks, once told me that the WWF sent this belt back to Reggie for him to refurbish it. But Reggie instead just replaced the leather and then gave the ring used leather to some neighborhood kids to play with. So if you ever wonder where some of the ring used items from your childhood memories wound up, just check the Arizona neighborhoods. Uh, hey, by the way, before we move on, how great is it to see that Ahmed Johnson was able to land that spokesperson gig? Which one's that? We have the meats. Tell me for a minute that Ahmed Johnson couldn't be related to fucking Ving Rhames. When I was watching this, my buddy who hadn't seen the show in a long time kind of forgot that this was Ahmed Johnson. And he says, is that the guy from Pulp Fiction? And all I could think about was those scenes from Pulp Fiction and how great it would be, especially since the Goldust characters here and what happened to Ving Rhames in Pulp Fiction. It's some weird stuff. Yeah, and I think that we, no, I take that back. I was going to say, I think that we actually use, I'm going to get medieval on your ass with Ahmed, but I want but that's, I don't, that's not true. I think that undertaker was the first one that we allowed to use that. So I'm going to get medieval on your ass from, from Pulp Fiction. And that was undertaker that said that somewhere to somebody. I need Ahmed to call somebody and tell them that the wolf is on the way. Uh, next up is the promo for in your house, international incident. It's featuring Sonny and Adam Panucci, some aliens who who thought this was a good idea to promote a wrestling pay-per-view with aliens. What you talking about, man? They want to build a wall and keep us out. Oh, I didn't, I didn't think about it. I forget you live in Texas, so this is something you're dealing with all the time. Man, Dave Silva and I were talking about this just yesterday because, you know, he does that another, and he does the fake news with the ABC people. Then in Harlingen, he's a, he, like, he does the fake news. And they're trying to build a wall to keep the aliens out. But, but our favorite alien is already here. See? Uh, Brian Pillman is out next and he's on crutches and in a boot to do an interview with Jim Ross. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just good to go back to that for all you, you know, we talk about Adam Panucci all the time. That was Adam Panucci in that ad. Who are the aliens? Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Hey man, I don't know their name. Should, one, should was have said Otto, one was Chewy, Thank one you. was Dave, Thank you. another one was Hector. Thank you. That's what I needed. I was hoping you were going to say immigrants, but you just went with naming them individually. Works for me. They had names, man. <laughs> My apologies. Okay. Uh, we've covered Pillman's WWF run in great detail. Also available in the archives. Uh, I, I mentioned that because I think it's probably one of our more underrated episodes. 
Um, Pillman goes out of his way here to run down the town and then says something like, I don't remember how I forget this. It's easy to see why Jeffrey Dahmer tried to consume this whole city. Wow. And later he says he's going to rape, pillage and plunder this entire federation. That's gotta be the first time rape was said on WWF TV, right? Probably not, but, uh, live TV, maybe. Yeah, Brian was given a lot of leeway and told to be controversial. That was that was the gimmick. And sometimes Brian, knowing that he was live, would push it as far as he possibly could. Um, does he get this stuff approved beforehand? And if not, uh, why are you guys even employing agents? Like a lot of that, especially the, the verbiage and stuff was usually either me or Cornette or Vince or somebody going over it with them. And they had a lot of leeway and Brian was told to push the envelope. So well, he did, he did on his way push to the him. back. Pillman would pass Austin on Austin's way to the ring for the final. And they exchanged a familiar glance. Of course, they were the Hollywood blinds and WCW and they're laying the groundwork here for what would come in the fall. Um, you probably remember the whole Pillman's got a gun angle. We break all of that down on our Pillman episode in the archives. Next up though, what we're really here for Steve Austin beats Jake Roberts. It takes about four and a half minutes to do so. And he becomes the king of the ring. The story of the whole match is that Roberts is working with badly injured ribs. The irony here is Austin is the person who's actually hurt. He got 15 or 16 stitches, depending on who you believe in the tongue and mouth. It was done backstage, not at the hospital, like they said on TV. And, um, Austin works on the ribs for the majority of the match and gorilla monsoon comes in to try to stop the match. But Jake begs him to let it go, which he does at this point, they started to get a lot of heat and Roberts made a quick comeback before being cut off. And Austin gets the stone cold stunner and the pin Meltzer would write. He did a strong post-match interview, knocking Robert's religion and drinking problems, half a star on commentary. Jim Ross would say, this may only be the beginning for that young man. Talk about the understatement of a lifetime, right? Bruce, I would say so. might've had a little insight into that. Um, was this match cut short? And if so, was it because of Jake's conditioning, the rib storyline or the stitches? I asked because he was reopened. The stitches reopened in the match. So he's bleeding again. And Lawler went long with his intro. Taker's match went long. The main event goes very long. Uh, the post match after the main event goes long. And despite all of that, plus the Coliseum home video exclusives, we're still only at two hours and 49 minutes on this show's runtime. So do you remember, was anything in particular cut short? Was this match always supposed to be four minutes? It was probably cut short. I, I don't really remember. Don't have the run sheets in front of me, but I want to say they was probably scheduled for closer to 10, something like that. Just knowing the flow of the show. But I do remember that we did cut it down due to Steve and the stitches and we didn't want him to get busted open and be any worse than it already was. So the idea was well, we can cut this match, go a little bit longer on your promo and we can just have other people feel as we move forward. As a postscript to the match, Steve Austin worked the first night of TV, but didn't work matches the second night. 
Uh, then he was off the road until July 5th because his lip was just mangled. He even consulted with a plastic surgeon to repair the damage at one point. So it was pretty damn severe. Um, was the, when a guy gets injured like this, is this the talk of the boys backstage? Yeah, it was pretty disgusting. I mean, it was almost like you just, you just cut his lip and, and then just ripped it. It was not a pretty sight, man. And, and it was the lip itself, which is real tender. And he was mangled up pretty good. Uh, any heat on marrow? Not really. I mean, it was an accident. Shit happens in the ring. So, um, just an unfortunate accident, but I don't remember any heat in particular. So let's talk about what everybody wants to hear about the famous promo. Austin wrote in his book that the kick was Marrow's fault. And that before the show, doc Hendricks told him that Jake was going to cut a religious promo on him. He wrote, when I did my infamous three sixteen promo after winning King of the ring, that was a strong ass promo. And none of that stuff was scripted. At the time that doc Hendricks stuck the mic in my face. He had no idea what I was going to say. And neither did Vince Jr. or the guys in the TV truck. It all just came out. All right. So a couple things about the promo. That's what Steve says. Did you or anyone else have any idea he was going this way when it happened? Yeah, I had an idea that he was going heavy on the, uh, religion and the, the drinking stuff. Definitely. But you didn't know the actual verbiage, but you knew that that was the gist of the promo. I probably did know the verbiage. He probably ran it by me, but absolutely. That was all Steve. That was just a hundred percent Steve cutting that promo. Um, and he, like I said, he, he ran it by me, but it wasn't, it was more of, am I okay with this? You know, going this route. And I was like, yes, by all means go for it. Because it was a story we were telling with Jake, but I had no clue at the time. Austin three sixteen was going to become what it was. Nobody did. I don't think, I don't think Steve had any idea. It was, it was a great line. And that hundred percent goes to uh, Steve Austin. Uh, Vince Russo over the years has taken a little bit of credit for this. And that has annoyed at different times. Michael Hayes, do you want to state clearly for the record, what involvement you think Vince Russo or Michael Hayes had in Austin three sixteen? Russo, none. Hayes. And uh, again, I'll give Hayes. Uh, probably Steve giving it to him beforehand, but I don't know that I don't know if Michael contributed to that or not. Leading like up, I said, I do remember Steve asking me about the religion and the, the alcohol. Can he go there? Awesome. Hell yeah. Go for it. That was my next question. Cause leading up to this show, Jake was on TV and he was talking about his problems with alcohol and cocaine, but it was always insinuated that those problems happened when he was despondent over losing to the undertaker and leaving the company in 92, of course, that's not true. They're just blending kayfabe and reality here. Jake was partying when he was a part of the company. Of course, um, Austin says something like get a cheap bottle of Thunderbird in his promo. So seemingly that's all fair game because it's been talked about on TV beforehand. And as you heard Bruce say, he did actually get permission. He also says sort of under his breath, piss off. Probably another first for the WWF, I think. Don't you? That piss off was on air that made air? Probably so, yeah. So when he does the Austin 316 line, you hear Vince on commentary say he is stone cold. How long had this stone cold plan been in place? Of course, nobody knew you know, what it would become, but the plan was clear. We're going to 
change the character a little bit and evolve it a little bit to make it stone cold. We already had the name in mind here and Vince is trying to drill it home. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And it was something that Steve had kind of uh, smart and Jr up to and Jr had been working it into commentary and Steve wanted to slowly morph his character from, uh, the million dollar champion and all this shit to stone cold, Steve Austin. And it was just a slow morph. And here was kind of the anointing. By the way, Austin credits Bruce Willis and Pulp Fiction for the buzz cut, but Woody Harrelson for the natural born killer, smooth shave look. Uh, we'll talk more about Austin's 95, 96 on a future episode. I'm sure uh, a lot of people actually overlook that. He closes the promo here, this Austin 316 promo with, and that's the bottom line. Cause stone cold said so in hindsight, Bruce, that was probably the more planned line. And Austin 316 was more of a one-off that just became a super hot shirt and stuck, right? Well, yeah. The next night when we showed up and you saw these signs of Austin 316 and everybody's going like, oh, good God, we've got something here. I think that the, and plus he was a heel. So you don't, you don't do merchandising for a heel. Nobody's going to buy a heel shirt. Who would buy that? So when Austin 316 took off the way it was, if anybody was going to plan anything, it was because stone cold said so, you know, that's the bottom line. Cause stone cold said, so that became his clothes, but Austin three sixteen became the brand and man, that it was, was the, accident. it was the hottest shirt in wrestling. Austin says that, uh, the three sixteen shirt and design was his idea. And obviously it became the hottest shirt in the business for a while. He also says that Vince kind of didn't get it and was slow to market it. Do you remember Vince being at all hesitant or not seeing the value because it's a departure at the time you see guys at this King of the ring pay-per-view, like there's a guy in the front row wearing a sunny t-shirt. It's a full color picture of Sonny's face and assets with a pool cue. Anyway, um, it's a, it's a departure for the way t- shirts were done. And so just a plain black shirt with white letters that says Austin three sixteen. Do you remember Vince being at all hesitant? He hated it. Absolutely hated it. He didn't get it. You know, it, it was my argument, but it was an old argument and it was something that I used to try to get across. I'm going back to the eighties. When they would do shirts, your number one shirt was Hulkamania. And it simply said Hulkamania. Um, Randy Savage was a pair of sunglasses, uh, you know, with his image, but it wasn't a picture of Randy. And Vince felt that the babyface t shirt should be like pictures of the babyfaces because people want to support their favorite. My argument was you're not, you're going to get more people to buy the shirt. If it doesn't have an image of someone on it, a dude's face, that's weird. Yeah. A dude's a dude doesn't want to wear another dude on his shirt. The pitch was, and I, I got, I remember the meeting sitting in Vince's office, me and Jim Ross and just saying with the merchandise guy saying, this is a shirt. This, this is merchandise. I guarantee you people will buy it. And the other the two pitches in that meeting were Austin 316, just simple white block letters on a black shirt. And then the other one was Sid's eyes. Yeah. And even there was even a pitch, uh, two other 
and again, they were heels, which he just didn't see, was the Mankind mask, simply the mask, not Mankind's face in it, but the mask, and also one of Vader's mask, just the mask, which were both kind of cool looking on their own. Um, Heels don't sell. God. But the overwhelming just response for that Austin 316, he finally gave in. We'll try it. And sold out everywhere immediately. He still kind of believes that heels don't sell. I mean, if you go over to the WWE yeah. shop now and you look at it, Becky Lynch merchandise, she's got 914 items. You look at Charlotte, she's got four. Uh, and, and, and that's not, that's not anything to do with their push on TV whatsoever. It's just one was a heel. Exactly. And I think that the, the Charlotte flair stuff, if they had cool, clever designs, I think that would sell just as much as Becky Lynch, if not more. Austin wrote in his book, uh, quote, that's why I think we need to get back to the way it used to be with guys just spitting out their own ideas and learning how to develop a character because Austin three sixteen would have never happened or even come up. If I was waiting for writers to tell me what to say, it all came from my heart. And as soon as I learned what Jake Roberts did in his pre-match promo, uh, what say you, Bruce, should the guys have more free reign? I see this as a slippery slope. We saw Billy Gunn earlier with an unscripted promo is kind of stinky. And there here, we saw Steve Austin with essentially bullet points hitting a home run. Is there a happy medium? And if we have to go hard one way or the other, what would you pick? I agree with you. There is, there is a happy medium, but I think that if you give guys bullet points, cream is going to rise to the top and those that can talk. I, I don't know that, that Billy, especially at that point in his career would have been any better with a completely scripted promo. I don't know that he could have delivered it convincingly. I think Austin, if he had been given a scripted promo that was well-written and, and his character had fully been developed, might've knocked it out of the park. Might have shit the bed because he was doing a scripted promo. Steve was better at being Stone Cold Steve Austin. He created it. It came out of his head. He lived it, and it was natural for him. Some guys, if it's just not natural for them, they're not going to be able to pull the damn thing off. I like non-scripted promos. I like bullet points. So Shawn Michaels keeps the title here, beating Davey Boy Smith in about 26 and a half minutes. To start the match, we see Mr. Perfect come out to be the ref, but Monsoon says he's now the outside referee since he was in Bulldog's locker room earlier. So Hebner is our main referee inside the ring. Um, this was all teased at In Your House Beware of Dog, where Shawn bumped into Perfect backstage, and here he's the ref and teasing the heel stuff but then actually doesn't do anything heelish. What's the point of all this, Bruce? He becomes full blown heel over the fall. He's teasing that he's on Marrow's side and then ultimately, uh, turning on him and joining Hunter Hearst Helmsley in a quest to win the intercontinental title. But what's the point of all this Sean perfect stuff that seemingly goes nowhere. Just planting seeds and being able to remind people of the Mr. Perfect character and to introduce to those that weren't familiar with him to be able to introduce him to new fans. And for those that are old, reintroduce him, but it was just simply an, another character to get him involved in different storylines and slowly, but surely, you know, you give him a swerve. Everybody knows the fix is in, but then it wasn't. So it's just trying to be unpredictable. Did you notice watching this back that when the doors open at the entrance, Mr. Perfect realizes he forgot to put his gum in his mouth. 
So he does it on camera and then just drops the wrapper on the ground. I did not notice that. No. How particular are guys about these little nuances of their character? Most guys are pretty good. You know, you, you, you're ready before you go out, uh, at gorilla position, you get everything ready and you're good to go. No, I don't mean that. I mean, like would razor wig out a little, if he didn't have a toothpick, would Mr. Perfect have been felt a little out of sorts if he didn't have the gum? That's what Probably I mean. So yeah. yeah. Uh, the match starts slow, but it's a good one for sure. At one point, Owen refers to Jose Lothario as quote, that dirty old Mexican, which comes off as shocking in 2017, unless you're Dave Silva. And then it's just your name around the house. Uh, the last few minutes were one near fall after the other until the dreaded Hebner bump that's word for word out of the observer. And I kind of thought the same thing too. I feel like when I watch these old matches that Hebner has been knocked down more times than glass Joe and Mike Tyson's punch out. Do you have any idea what I just said? Yes, I do. Okay. Mike Tyson's punch out. It's a game and you like Tyson and he fights people in the video game. And that's Glass Joe. That's Glass John. He gets knocked out a lot by Mike Tyson. Roll time. Look at you. Uh, you really did enjoy that uh, Monsters game on Sega Saturn. Meltzer wrote, Michaels did an elbow off the top and a terribly weak-looking super kick. I have to admit, Bruce, I thought he missed the super kick, too. Uh, anyway, Hebner and Perfect start counting, but Owen pulls Perfect off before he can finish. Hebner does finish the count, so Sean wins the match. But that doesn't stop Owen from jumping in with his cast. He's still wearing the tux, by the way, and he starts double teaming Sean with Bulldog. Eventually, this brings Ahmed out, and he comes to make the save, but that leads Vader to come out. So Cornette's involved at this point, and he even hits Jose with the racket. Uh, Vader has to stall seemingly forever as he's climbing up the ropes to do a top rope splash on Shawn Michaels because they're waiting on Warrior to come up, and he finally shows up and pushes Vader off the top rope. Uh, the heels take a powder. The baby faces celebrate with poses in the ring. As Vince tells us our main event at in your house, international incident will be a six man tag with these six guys. Meltzer gave this match four stars and a quarter. So he liked it better than I did before we talked about the post-match. what did you think of the actual match, Bruce? I thought the actual match was great. It was my favorite match uh, of the night. Uh, taker was second, but I thought that the match itself was a damn good match and told a good story where they wanted to go. Now the aftermath (laughs) was just a cluster. Yeah, it really was. Um, and I couldn't help, especially since we've been doing these shows together when the pay-per-view is going off the air. Well, first before they do the recap package, and I kind of forgot that they used to recap a pay-per-view at the end of the pay-per-view. I don't remember why they did that or why they stopped doing it, but it seems really, really out of place to watch it in 2017. Uh, like, I don't need to recap. I just watched the whole thing. This should be at the beginning of the next pay-per-view, not here. But anyway, as they're all posing to go off the air, you know, one thing crossed my mind the whole time. What's that? Hogan must pose. This feels like this is Vince, like. Okay, we've got to make sure they pose. The baby faces are triumphant. Shawn Michaels is the most charismatic performer in the history of the WWE. We've got the ultimate warrior, by God. They've been chanting for the warrior. Of course they want to see him pose. Get him out there in his comic book duster with his sequins on the top and then let him pose. You know, my takeaway on that was 
simply watching Sean hug Warrior at the end was simply the most, um, what's the word? Um, ridiculous? No, not ridiculous. Um, non-genuine, uh, just like he didn't want to get any warrior on him type thing, but he knew he had to hug him because it's the babyface thing to do. And it was the three most unlikely guys in the ring at the end. And, and I just thought it was awkward at best to me. Ahmed Johnson, the ultimate warrior and Shawn Michaels is the Sesame street pro wrestling version of which one of these is not like the other. Yeah. Let me ask you hypothetically in a three-way match, Ahmed Johnson, Mark Merrow, ultimate warrior. Who you got? <laughs> the referee. Uh, I don't know where to fit this in. Uh, so if I don't ask it right now, I'll probably forget. Why wasn't there a European tour in 96? I asked because you guys did South Africa in September. Uh, and then you did Singapore, Malaysia, and Australia in November and December. But I thought it was somewhat of a tradition to go right after WrestleMania. And you guys always drew big houses in Europe. The reason I ask is because Meltzer gives the reason here as fear of burning out the market. Talk me through that silly shit. How do you burn out a market that you only go to once a year? Meanwhile, you're in the Northeast every other weekend. What was the real reason you didn't go? Is it because those other shows were sold shows and therefore there was no additional financial risk, but the traditional European tour had too many costs associated with it. And Vince just didn't want to roll the dice when business was down in 96 or why not go? If you know that you're always selling out over there. I really don't know. I don't know what that specific reason was, why we didn't do it, other than we may have just had things booked domestically that were good and the business was decent in the States. But it just may have been that we didn't have anything booked at that time and it didn't make sense. Now, previous to that, we had gone under the philosophy of pre-sold shows. So if we didn't have something pre-sold that didn't fit financially, don't go. Hypothetically, what would someone in Malaysia have probably had to pay for a WWE show? A hundred two fifty. Give me a ballpark Four. really. Oh yeah. That's amazing. Uh, the wrestlers, uh, according to Meltzer had lots of problems due to either a flight delay or a cancellation and getting from Madison, Wisconsin after their June 26th show into Louisville, Kentucky for their June 27th show. So Aldo Montoya and Duke, the dumpster Drose had to stall for 45 minutes doing one match where Duke won by turning heel. Then a second match with Montoya winning before the rest of the crew finally arrived. Do you remember this? I've got to hear about this great, this great Duke, the dumpster match for 45 minutes. I mean, this is missing in my life. I need a 45 minute Duke, the dumpster match. Main event anywhere in the Sheboygan. I have no idea. I, we used to have to do that shit all the time. Sometimes when the main event wouldn't be there, stall, stretch. Do you remember though, there being a time when there's literally two wrestlers there? <laughs> The crew's yeah. there, the ring's set up, there's two guys and nobody else. Hey, y'all go work until everybody gets there. As a matter of fact, the very first time that I ever refereed a match, I was 16 years old in Bryan, Texas, and there was another show going on nearby. There were two spot shows, and we had split crews that were working double shots. 
the only match in the dressing room for our show in Bryan, Texas, was the main event, which was Gino Hernandez and Jose Lothario. And I was the referee for that match, and the rest of our card had not shown up. So we went out and did a roughly a 40-minute main event to start the show, waiting for the rest of the crew to arrive. Yeah, that's what Aldo and uh, Duke did here, 45-minute main event. Uh, I'm, I'm jealous of those people in Louisville, Kentucky, who were treated to that. Well, you know. Let's talk about the Ultimate Warrior for a minute, uh, because this was his last WWE pay-per-view. Uh, it's worth mentioning that his biological father, Tom, passed away on June 30th. According to Warrior's testimony, they had been estranged practically his whole life, uh, since roughly three years old, and his father, Tom, was living in South Florida at the time. This is relevant because Warrior would later claim his father's death is why he would no-show some events, and that all ultimately led to his release. It's worth mentioning again, his father dies on June 30th, and based on Warrior's own testimony, they've been estranged since he was three. Uh, I make mention of that because he didn't make June 25th in La Crosse, Pennsylvania, or Indianapolis on June 28th. At least one of those was known as being a legit no-show right away. They tried to position the other one as if it was transportation problems. But the next day in Detroit, June 29th, the wrestlers were given word that Warrior was through. He'd either quit or was fired, but nobody really knew for sure. Considering the war they were in with WCW, everybody starts to panic a little bit. But he has 14 months left on his contract. So if he were fired, maybe there'd be a loophole where he could go. Do you, do you theorize that he was no showing here to try to get fired and then jump? No, he, he was, it was simply a, it was simply a power play and it was a, it was a contract play and, and him trying to hold us up for money again. Well, let's talk about that a little more, uh, on June 29th, the morning of, uh, when the office realizes warriors done, they call and ask Brett to fill in for him as a make good to the fans in Detroit and Pittsburgh. Brett passes. So when warriors saying I'm not coming and then you guys call Brett, who's not under contract, but you're trying to get him off the couch and you really want him to sign with you and not go to WCW when you know, he's had offers there in the past. And he too says, no, considering that Hall and Nash had just left, you gotta be feeling a little panicky here, right? Ain't happy. So that's for sure. Yeah. So we're, we're scrambling. Plan C is to call and hire Psycho Sid as a babyface, and he will fill in as the replacement on those towns where the ring announcer Bill Dunn would announce that Warrior couldn't be there because, quote, he refuses to wrestle in a city like fill in blank, basically turning him heel and burying him to the audience. They offer refunds in both cities, and reportedly a few dozen actually take them. Uh, he was said to be replaced by the craziest wrestler in the WWF, but they didn't mention a name. So that's their way of trying to convince you, Hey, it might still be good. Don't turn your tickets in just yet. Stick around for the show. Whose call was it to announce him like this? Is this old school wrestling or is this somebody saying, fuck him? Let's bury him. That's no, old school wrestling. It was Vince's call, but warrior did refuse. He, he refused to go and make his obligated dates and he refused to show up. So it's, it's simply, all right, you don't want to show up. We'll just let everybody know that you're refusing to go to work. 
Meltzer would report that Warrior's relationship with Vince was rocky at best. They had an agreement for him to come in in December of 95, but his demands kept mounting, so that kept it from happening. So WrestleMania 96 was the new plan, but even the week of, he had drama that included stiffing promoters in Europe and walking out on his own promotion in Las Vegas the day before a show, leaving with several sponsorship checks. Uh, Bruce, do you remember any of this specifically trying to get him in in December of 95 and then him having some drama in his own promotion the week of WrestleMania 12? I, I don't remember anything with, uh, December 95. I, I do remember, you know, the stuff going into WrestleMania 96, but not, not before that. No. In the meantime, the warrior does an online interview on July 1st and said that he missed the dates because his dad died and he was going to return on the 11th in Albany, which was his next scheduled booking. He had the weekend off in between off, uh, because he was doing a comic book convention and this had already been worked out with the company. He gets a little bit of heat for doing this chat online because he does it with Bob of prodigy as opposed to the AOL WWF sponsor. Uh, all of this about him returning, uh, on the 11th and all that, that was all news to the WWF. Uh, when did you guys hear Bruce that he was going to use the death of his father as a reason to miss the shows after his dad died? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, uh, my dad, my dad's dying. It's like, wait a minute. You've had no relationship with your father, your entire life. Well, no, I get that, but I'm saying he would say, I mean, after he died. He says, well, I couldn't make it because my dad was sick and he died. Yeah. That's the point that Meltzer's trying to drive home here. He's missing shows on the 25th. His dad dies on the 30th. And then he says, well, my dad died. Well, he didn't die when you missed the first show. So what happened then? He he died. Yeah, Yeah. uh, exactly. None of it made sense. Uh, Meltzer would write a McMahon Hellwig breakup would be even messier this time than in the past with their business partnership in both the comic book and the wrestling school in Phoenix having to be sorted out. Remind us again, Bruce, about Vince's involvement in those ventures, the comic book and this wrestling school in Phoenix, which is pretty awesome when you think about it, that the ultimate warrior had a wrestling school. We had no involvement with the wrestling school in Phoenix at all. That was warriors. That was his deal. And we agreed to give it some publicity as part of warriors deal, but we had no involvement in it at all. Uh, the comic book stuff, that was simply something that we agreed to distribute those with the WWF magazine and that we would agree to sell some of those as well as part of the, uh, magazine subscription stuff. Warrior wanted us to buy a shitload of them. This all came to a head on Monday, July the 8th, when the WWF suspended the warrior officially, they announced on raw that it was effective immediately. Sid was put in his spot for the July pay-per-view international incident. Um, Meltzer would write WWF figurehead president gorilla monsoon announced the suspension to the fans saying that no matter how popular ultimate warrior was, no wrestler was above missing his scheduled appearances and letting down the fans. Monsoon stated that warrior would be welcome back provided he posts an appearance bond. Uh, Bruce, I found it interesting that you guys had gorilla gorilla kind of baby face in the company and putting all the heat on the guy like this and almost sort of airing the dirty laundry about an appearance bond requirement. Do you remember a guy having to post an appearance bond, whether made public or not in the history of the business? I've never heard of this. Oh God. Yes. Back, back in the day, that's what you had to do, especially for champions. And if somebody 
had a history of no showing and shit like that. If you wanted to book them, they would have to do an appearance bond and put up their money ahead of time before the promoter would book them. Give me an example. Uh, well, for example, Harley race in Houston, Paul wanted Harley to put up an appearance bond because Harley had no shown a champion twice before. Uh, so there were, it was different guys. It it wasn't done a lot, but it was definitely done for guys that had a history of no showing. Let's talk about this appearance bond for a minute. Uh, Dave would write Vince McMahon told Helwig that he would be brought back provided he posted a large bond which he would forfeit to the WWF provided he were to no show another card. Uh, the exact amount Helwig would be required to post is being negotiated, but it will be in excess of a hundred thousand dollars. Helwig is said to have neither agreed to the price nor indicated that he won't meet the price in order to return. Although there is the belief that he will return. Dave would later report that the bond was closer to 250,000. I know you don't talk money, but this is different, Bruce. What was the amount? And did anyone in the office really believe at this point he'd be back? Well, Warrior was talking about wanting to come back and, and making amends and saying he would do whatever it would take. And Vince's response to that was, I can't trust you. You've already told us that you were going to come back this time. Everything was going to be good. And then you pull this crap in order to do this. You know, we've got to protect ourselves and we can't go out. We lost a lot of money by advertising him. You got to change your advertising. You got to change all the bullshit, bringing Sid in. All that costs money. There is a cost associated with that. I don't know. I have no idea what the uh, appearance bond was. That was so damn long ago. But there was talk of him basically putting the money up to be held in escrow. If you know show, then you forfeit that money. Uh, this no-show situation and suspension caused some serious problems with TV because he'd already wrestled Owen on the same Raw where Gorilla suspended him because the show was already in the can. Uh, over the weekend, he attacked Camp Cornet on the syndicated shows. Again, it was already in the can. Uh, Bruce, do you remember another situation like this offhand where a guy was gone, but you felt like you had to air the TV anyway besides Rick Rude? Because there was such of a lead time on the syndicated shows... They were already out there. No, I'm not arguing that. I'm saying, can you think of another example of, um, of of when that would have happened besides Rick Rude? When you know a guy's gone, but he's still on your TV and you can't fix it. There might have been there might have been times, but not not to this extent. No. So I can remember. Here's what the gist of the fight is all about. Dave wrote that the warrior would blow up at McMahon over the phone on June 28th when he saw quote always believe as a WWF marketing slogan at a trade show. He felt that always believe was his and that he should be compensated for the WWF using that. Do you remember this particular argument about the phrase always believe Bruce? I remember there being some bitch about that. Yeah. And that, uh, warrior had that trademarked and that it wasn't trademarked or something on the poster, some kind of bullshit like that. As strange as this sounds, it got even weirder. Warrior did a Q&A at a comic book convention that we just mentioned a moment ago in San Diego. And while he's there, he acts like everything's fine and that he's back on the road for the company the following weekend. Uh, that next Monday, Vince goes on Raw and says that the Warrior's lawyer and the WWF have had a dialogue. Uh, Warrior did another online message saying he missed the shows, not over a contract, but that the death of his father was the reason. And specifically, he wrote... 
If resolving my personal issues and protecting the way I chose to believe puts me in the WWF doghouse as stated on their money making one nine hundred line, then so be it. Bow wow and kiss my ass. Always believe. Dave would again remind us, quote, Helwig's father, Tom Helwig, passed away at the age of fifty eight on June thirtieth in Hollywood, Florida. And as everyone continually points out, Helwig missed shows on both June twenty eighth and June twenty ninth. Uh when did you know this was over for sure, Bruce, and that Warrior was not coming back? I knew it was over when essentially Vince told him to make his decision to either show up or he would no longer be a part of the company and he didn't show up. It was, it was just too much bullshit too soon. And Vince had reached his boiling point and was pretty much done. All right. So, uh, let's go ahead and talk a little more WWF 1996 here. There's lots going on people coming and going around this time. Uh, a 36 year old Barry Wyndham was signed here. And as we've discussed before, he would become the stalker. Uh, Meltzer would report that he came to the meeting about 20 pounds overweight. Do you remember that Bruce? No, I thought Barry looked good at the time. Uh, we discussed before on the show, how Brian Pillman had just signed and the whole story around that is available in the archives right now. Uh, but Ron Simmons has also just signed a deal and he's coming in as Farouk Assad. Uh, Bruce, I'm curious at the time of their signings, who did the office have higher expectations for Brian Pillman or Ron Simmons? Probably Ron Simmons. Really? I would have went the other way with that after there was the big, the only reason I say that is because we know there was this like bidding war for Brian Pillman. That's not happening for Ron Simmons. There was a perceived bidding war for Brian Pillman. But the, uh, well, had man, all, if you I, only, if you only knew how many years and how much bullshit I went through to, to finally get that call from Ron Simmons, damn bro, I'm ready to talk every year on the, the anniversary of his 60 day window. I called Ron Simmons. Hey Ron, it's Bruce. How we looking buddy? <laughs> ready to make a move? Can we talk? Damn. I think I'm going to stay where I am. And then there was that one day when he said, yeah, let's talk. Vince and I hopped on a plane to Atlanta, Georgia. The the company was planning to uh, repackage and debut or re-debut Jim Neidhart, Tracy Smothers, Tony Anthony, Alex Porto, Tom Brandy, and Bill Irwin. All repackaged with brand new gimmicks. These wonderful gimmicks included Freddie Joe Floyd, Teal Hopper, the plumber, the pug, Salvatore sincere and the goon, the hockey player, uh, teal hopper actually debuted with some plumbing vignettes and his butt crack was exposed. Who booked this shit, Bruce? It was simply done as a way to, you know, we had enhancement talent and we wanted to give them a persona. What's that? You wanted to give the enhancement talent a persona. Correct. Yeah. And we wanted to just you know, build up our enhancement talent. And this was the way of doing that, bringing in a lot of guys that were great workers that we didn't think would be huge stars on their own, but definitely knew how to make stars. Uh, why does Tony Anthony have to change his name and unclog toilets? But Alex Porto is an amateur wrestler who uses his real name because Tony was working as a plumber at that time. And that's what he did in real life. So make him a plumber on TV. 
And Alex Portel was an amateur wrestler in real life. So he would just walk around the Walmart taking people down with double legs. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, the biggest name in this group, at least to me as a Southern boy, is Tracy Smothers. He'd been on and off WCW TV for years. Why not let him keep that name? Why does he got to be Freddie Joe Floyd? Because Vince didn't want Tracy Smothers. Easy enough. Vince also didn't want the one, two, three kid. They had a meeting and nothing was decided on in that face-to-face meeting. But a week later he was released. Why was Waltman released from his contract in 96? You're right in the middle of a quote unquote Monday night war. And now you're letting a guy just walk over to the other side who, you know, is going to join Hall and Nash. Why was, why was the company okay with just letting him walk? Well, because Vince didn't really view him at that time as, is the top guy and that great of a loss. And, and Sean wasn't the easiest to deal with at that point in time either. So Vince didn't want the headache and didn't feel that, that keeping him in the headache that came along with it was something and felt, go ahead and give that headache to WCW if they want him. Rad Radford, who we now know as Louis Piccoli, was given an unconditional release this same time. And uh, this likely only happens because the WWF didn't think WCW would want him or care if they did. Uh, he knew this was coming, though, because Louis had a start date already worked out with ECW. He just needed to get released first. Uh, why don't you think Louie made a bigger impact in the WWF? Louie had problems and, and Louie, Louie had drug issues and drinking issues and had a problem at that time. And he wasn't willing to do what it took to take care of those problems. So something had to change. So we had to let him go. It's another sad story because ultimately that would lead to the end of his life. Uh, just like a year later, uh, Dave would write, Quote, Basil DeVito, longtime VP with Titan Sports, who left a few years back, was hired back as a consultant when it comes to business development. In a sense, he'll replace Lisa Wolf, who was another company VP in charge of business development and human resources. Uh, Bruce, we've mentioned uh, Basil here and there on the show. Uh, compare and contrast him with Lisa Wolf for us. Night and day, but Basil wasn't brought in to, to do human resources at all. Um, Basil was brought in to basically consult and help out with promotions and help out with the, the marketing end of things because with Lisa's departure and Osper, Dearsay, and Ed DeLang and all those guys, there was a void there. And Vince felt that Basil's familiarity with the company and promotional experience would be good to kind of help oversee all of that and bring the right people in. Uh, the Los Angeles times around this time had a lengthy article about Olympic weightlifter, Mark Henry, who Meltzer described as quote, being sponsored by the WWF and will probably join the WWF after the Olympics. Henry isn't expected to medal. The story talked about Henry's childhood idol being Andre the giant. And he said the WWF is more honest competition than Olympic lifting because of the WWF steroid policy End quote. That is hilarious. Uh, chat me up about Mark Henry's signing. Who finds him and how does that deal come together? It seems very unconventional for Vince to do something like this. Terry Todd, who was Mark Henry's, uh, well, basically was Mark's second father. Is you know That's the guy that Mark Henry looks up to as his father. He was his manager. He was his trainer. Uh, Terry Todd is the strength and conditioning coach at, uh, university of Texas. I think that's his correct title, but, um, Terry is a huge name, a legend in, in the world of strongmen. 
Um, he's a historian, a writer, but just a, in, a, in an all-around good guy to boot. But Terry had done an article for Sports Illustrated about Andre the Giant years before, and that was his introduction to Vince McMahon. So Vince and Terry had, had kept in contact. Um, Vince was infatuated. He's always been infatuated with strong men and people that ilk. Terry did a hell of a job selling Mark Henry and Mark's personable son of a bitch. And, you know, when you meet Mark, the other, the other thing about Mark was they sent a clip of Mark at the NBA, the slam dunk contest and Mark dunking a basketball. And Vince was mesmerized this damn near 400 pounder dunking a basketball. Look at the athleticism on that big bastard. He looks like a silverback gorilla. God, what we could do with the world's strongest man. So he was infatuated with it. He was infatuated with the legit title of having the actual world, world's strongest man. Uh, another guy who was uh, in the real sports world, Dave would write, According to the Chicago Sun-Times, Dale Torberg, the son of former White Sox and Indians manager Jeff Torberg, wants to wrestle in the WWF. He played two years of Class A baseball, but was cut by the Yankees and failed to catch on. Uh, Dale would go on to become the Kiss Demon for WCW. Did the WWF ever give him a serious look? We talked to him, and we talked about bringing him in and maybe training him for a while, but I think that WCW came along and made him a more attractive offer, so he went to WCW. Uh, Dave wrote that the gangsters in paradise both quit when Samu was going to be suspended for violating a company policy. What happened? That's probably what happened. He probably flunked the drug test. Uh, Christine Rosati, one of the three sisters from Hopewell Junction that Bobby Heenan had in bathing suits on his Bobby Heenan show, passed away on June 27th from the E. coli virus. She was just 47. You remember her and her sisters from the early Raws, too. They would carry around the ring cards with the silly slogans on them. Uh, I know we discussed these ladies in more detail on our primetime wrestling episode, which is available now in the archives. But can you tell us a fun story as to why Vince loved these ladies so much? They were super fans before super fans were cool. They always came to the Poughkeepsie Allentown television tapings, and I don't think that they ever had a bad day in their life. They were always just fun to be around, always positive to be around, and they just were a lot of fun and really, really nice people. So made them a couple of oinkettes, the, the, you know, the oinkettes, the triplets, and that's about it, man. The Rosati sisters, just really, really sweet ladies. Let's talk about Bulldog again for a minute. As we mentioned at the top of the show, there was speculation that he might be the third man for the NWO. As we discussed on our in your house, beware of dog episode available now in the archives, uh, Bulldog had given his 90 day notice on May 28th. Uh, but then he meets with Vince on June 6th and told him he had a big money offer on the table from WCW and Meltzer reported, quote, McMahon is making an effort to sign a lot of the key guys to five-year deals as he apparently wants to avoid more Hall and Nash situations. Linda McMahon sent a five-year contract to his lawyer, but at press time, he hasn't signed it, although that delay may be partially because of the family tragedy. Uh, his nephew had just suddenly passed away, um, and it was he was a young kid, so this was obviously a big deal to the family. Eventually, we know, though, Bulldog would re-sign, and some of their issues were with the way they thought uh, 
his wife had been portrayed on TV that had upset Stu and Helen and Brett and people in the family. Uh, do you think there was ever any concern that bulldog was going to wind up being the third man or did you feel that him leaving was probably unlikely? Look, we were concerned about everybody leaving at that time. We, we were trying to cinch up contracts and secure everybody to longer term deals. So if there was someone that was, you know, on that, line that we needed to sign there was concern they were going to go to greener pastures so there was concern without a doubt but i don't know that there was any more concern with davy boy being one to go because we did have an offer out to him and he had indicated that he wasn't going anywhere well kevin nash said that in front of the whole locker room too didn't he yeah exactly uh dave also wrote quote Rumors are flying. It'll be Jeff Jarrett since Vince McMahon on the WWF hotline brought up Jarrett's name with diesel and Ramon as expecting him to join WCW. Jarrett gave notice to Titan and is working out his notice in USWA and he is WCW bound. However, his WWF contract doesn't expire until the fall. So it probably won't be him. So we're just kind of letting you know here that at this point, there's just rampant speculation about who this third person could be. Hall and Nash wanted to be Brett. Obviously the original story is that it's going to be Lex Luger, but now there's all these other folks. It could be the British bulldog. It could be this guy could be that guy. When did you know it was going to be Hulk Hogan, Bruce? When he walked out at bash at the beach. Well, don't forget Hulk Hogan's 1988 is coming to you on Friday, June 2nd. You may remember right before WrestleMania, Bruce was in a horrible storm. Uh, we had to tape that one with duct tape in a security closet with a 9% battery life standing on rations. Uh, it was not a great situation, but Hogan 88 is going to be one of our more fun shows. It's coming to you Friday, June 2nd. Set your calendars, tell your friends. This is going to cover the very famous, maybe the best wrestling angle of all time. The evil twin referee, the Hebners from Saturday night's main event, or I guess it was called the main event then. It's the debut of the Winged Eagle Belt. You've got the evil Hebner deal. It's the setup for WrestleMania 4 and all the way through 1988. Hulk Hogan's 1988, Friday, June 2nd. And uh, we'll see you here next week on Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Macho Libre. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.